join with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll look a little bit at chapter 2, but through the weeks I've been telling you about the current condition of the churches of the SBC. Uh, I don't mean to be criticizing the SBC, but the 47,000 churches that represent the SBC uh, and the kingdom are struggling in many, many ways. I've got to be transparent and honest with you in that way. We've got about 15 million members, and only about 5 million show up for worship on a Sunday. That leaves um, somewhere between 9 and 10 million that do not attend. Uh, in fact, uh, to be quite honest with you, I don't think the FBI could find many of them uh, if they got to searching. Uh, it's a challenge. It is a, in fact, it's a scandal. Uh, half of the young people that graduate from high school and uh, continue with the church do not continue with the Southern Baptist Church. Most of them go non-denominational is what they end up doing. Uh, they're not flocking to traditional churches. They are, I'm not sure they're flocking really anywhere, but uh, if they do go and leave Southern Baptist churches, they generally go to non-denominational churches. Why is this such a problem? Well, one is we have failed to communicate New Testament expectations for members. That's one of the commitments I've made in my ministry to make it clear that the New Testament teaches certain responsibilities and expectations of membership, and I've tried to be faithful to that, but somehow that's lost. And I was taught uh, by older ministers to be very clear about that, that uh, it should cost you something to be part of a local church. God expects those things. Now, we cannot invent expectations. We're not free to do that. We go by the Word of God, and we communicate those. And if there's someone that that would scare off, then they're not ready for church membership. And so that's what we communicate, New Testament expectations. There's another thing as well, and that is some churches love their traditions more than they love lost people and their children and their grandchildren or someone else's children and someone else's grandchildren. You may say, well, hold on just a minute. I don't have children and grandchildren in this church. Well, but there, you do have someone else's children and grandchildren. And if your children and grandchildren are attending another church, there are others that have them. And while you may not have children and grandchildren in this church, you do have brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of them are little. And some of them are new to the faith. And so they are to sacrifice the least. We are to sacrifice the most. But tradition does get in the way. And by the way, it's not getting any better. It's getting worse in our churches. There's almost a blind commitment to tradition when even when it hinders ministry. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments. And then in some churches, there's a power struggle over leadership. I don't know why that is. The Bible is very clear about how it is that we are to lead. Now, the result is this. The result, of course, is about a 10 million gap between our membership and uh, our worship attendance. But the thing that we're looking at coming up in the future is, is that there's going to be a break point when we can no longer fund the International Mission Board and we'll have to start pulling missionaries off the field. You cannot continue year after year after year to decline in membership, to decline in baptisms, to decline in evangelism, to decline in these areas and still send missionaries. We are in a crisis as Southern Baptist churches. Now, God has been very, very good to Beach Haven. We're not facing these same realities, and thank God. Uh, God has blessed us remarkably. Let me tell you about our process. Our process for membership here at Beach Haven is simply you receive Christ as Savior. 
You have a definitive and memorable conversion experience. You follow that with biblical baptism. Baptism by immersion. The same way Jesus did it. Don't ever be satisfied until you're baptized just like Jesus was. And like was done in the early church. That's not something we invented. A bunch of clerics got together and decided we persecute the whole world by doing baptism differently. Baptism of believers by immersion is the New Testament approach. All the other approaches were invented by men. Not to be critical, there's some lovely people that do that, but we, we require biblical baptism. The third thing is, is that we train every new member before they actually end up joining. They can come, present themselves, but we put their name on the roll and activate them after they are trained. And that usually takes a dinner at my home and about an hour of orientation uh, to those that have come on board. And uh, quite frankly, I've been doing this since uh, September of 1991. I've only had two people ever object to doing that before membership, and the rest have been just lovely and supportive and committed. By the way, if you know Christ as Savior, you've been baptized, you're invited to membership, or if you haven't been baptized, we'll, we'll baptize you. We invite you. The door is wide open to anybody who will embrace Jesus Christ, embrace the will of God, and follow him by the terms that he is outlined in his own word. Now, that's our process. Here are the results. Here are the results. We have uh, had up to this date, we've had up to this date, uh, about 85% of our new members since January 2014 are faithful, active, and committed. Not 33% like the rest of the SBC, but 85% of our members are faithful, active, and committed that have come on board with us since January 2014. We only have in number 29 radical non-attenders. That means they came at one point, they joined, we haven't seen them since. Only 29 of those. We've reached out to them, we've done everything we can other than harass them. We're not going to harass them, we'll pray for them, but that's what we've got in Beach Haven Baptist Church. God has blessed us remarkably with our new members. Some of those came by conversion. Some of those came by transfer of letter. Some of those came by statement. But God has blessed us remarkably. And we have had, since January 2014, about 60 funerals, close to 60 funerals. That means we've lost about 25 to 30 tithers in that time. But these new members have stepped aboard and they've been faithful with their giving and their stewardship before God. And so... Um, as far as stewardship in our church, we've done very, very well, and we're grateful. Now, here's the challenge when it comes to church member and church attendance. When I finished seminary in 1991, I was told, and we expected, that our most faithful and active members would attend about 45 out of 52 Sundays. They take a couple weeks vacation. Uh, they might go to a wedding one weekend out of town. Uh, they might go see family on another weekend. They, they would be gone about seven weeks out of the year, your most faithful, active members. Uh, and so they would attend 45 out of 52 Sundays out of the year. Today, that number has decreased to about 26. Your most faithful, active members in a local church, on average, attend 26 out of 52 Sundays, according to uh, Tom Rainer's research at LifeWay, 26. So here's what we really have in many of our churches. We have churches that have more people attending fewer times out of the year. 
Uh, you, you, and, and we used to um, we used to state you've got a first Sunday and a third Sunday crowd. You've got a second Sunday and a fourth Sunday crowd. They all get confused on the fifth Sunday and show up on a fifth Sunday, and fifth Sundays are big. Sometimes that's what you've got. Well, that, that's the case. And so it's very possible for a church that averages 400 in worship to actually in a month have 500, 550 different people attend. It's just they're not attending 45 times out of the year. They're attending 26 times out of the year, most faithful, active church members. Now, that goes with an increase in wealth. That comes with um, uh, the, the financial blessings that God gives to many families and an increase in income. Uh, what happens, and that is the number one contributor to that. Our folks in Southern Baptist churches now travel more than they ever have before. Now, that's the challenge we've got before us, and, and the reason that's a challenge is it is very difficult to get traction with a vision and to create a movement in a local church because you're always having to catch people up on new information and um, new initiatives and new vision and those kinds of things. It can be very, very difficult, and the communication difficulties of that are enormous. In fact, uh, our church, for example, has actually got a staff member, uh, a support staff member, Pam Ratty, whose job is to coordinate all of our communications. Thirty years ago, there was no such position. But we have to constantly promote what we're doing so that people will know what's going on because they just don't show up like they used to. That's the challenge. And so that's a challenge that we've got. Now, God's blessed us remarkably with our process. The result has been great. The challenge is very, very real. Um, the, the truth is, when it comes to the 45, 26 uh, times a year of attending, most church members, most church members overestimate their church attendance. You might want to keep track of that sometime, and um, uh, I think that that will help you real good. Now, in this text, in 1 Thessalonians 3, and we'll look at the last few verses of chapter 2 as well, Paul here communicates and expects the Thessalonians to be faithful to God, even though they're enduring persecution. He wants them to stick to the faith. He wants them to be a Velcro church. You ever use Velcro? I think Velcro's the best invention in the whole wide world. I, I really do. Uh, it's, it's a very helpful thing. And churches need to be Velcro churches. The Thessalonican church was a Velcro church. Despite the fact, despite the fact that they were enduring unbearable, vicious persecution, Paul said that they were a Velcro church. When you attached yourself to the Thessalonican church, you stuck. They were sticky. They were Velcro. They were a Velcro church. Every church needs to be a Velcro church and can be if we'll do church God's way. Well, look at, with me in chapter 3 and uh, beginning in uh, verse number uh, 8. I just want to read this verse uh, as a theme verse and then we will expound the whole text. Paul says, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. We are deeply satisfied. We're deeply satisfied with where you are with God if you stand fast in the Lord. You know something? We can say that about our church. We can if we'll do things God's way. Uh, well, what is God's way to create a Velcro church? Well, first, the Velcro church applies Scripture. 
The Velcro, Velcro church applies scripture. Now, the context of all of this is verse number 3 of chapter 3. He said, no one should be shaken by these, these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. In other words, they're enduring intense persecution there. And the Apostle Paul says, I still want you to apply the scripture, even in that context. There's no gap between their faith and their application. Now, they're a young church. Most of these are very new. In fact, all of these are very new Christians in this church. They're probably not a year old. And even in the midst of persecution, Paul wants them to take the doctrines of the faith and apply them to life. And I want to number some of these doctrines for you. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother, and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were something that the Apostle Paul could mention to them without explaining it. They already knew it. And because of that, they were remaining faithful. So there's the gospel of Christ. Then look at verse number 5. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, the distance and not knowing about you, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you. Now, who's the tempter? Well, Satan is and his demonic host. And so Paul is saying here, uh, I had great concern for you. I, I feared that Satan had interrupted and interfered with your walk with God. And um, uh, because of that, I sent Timothy to look after you. So he's mentioning the doctrine of Satanology. So the gospel of Christ, Satan, that's another theological subject. Verse number 11, now may the God and Father, may, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So he's dealing with the Trinity here in the text as well. He's concerned about the Father, the Son, and throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he mentions the Spirit as well. He didn't hold off mention of the Trinity for a later date, but he was able to do that without an awful lot of explanation because they were doctrinally mature. And then one final theological subject is found also in verse number 13. He prays so that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So early on, they knew the gospel. They knew about the devil. They knew about the Trinity. And they knew about the return of Jesus Christ. And all of that buttressed them and sustained them and established them to be faithful even during times of persecution. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem in most churches is not that people don't believe the Bible. They simply are not intentional about applying it in life. That is the number one challenge. In fact, I can go into just about any crowd and ask them, what did I preach last Sunday? And they don't remember unless they took notes or attempted to apply it themselves. So often what happens is that we get the habit of coming to church and listening to a message and walking away as if nothing happened. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to understand when Scripture speaks, God speaks. And He doesn't stutter. And He expects intentional efforts to obey His Word or else our hearts become calloused and hardened is what can happen. So the church that is sticky, the church that is Velcro, intentionally applies the word. All of the research shows that Bible-believing and Bible-applying churches are the churches that reach, keep, and clean people to walk 
with God. John Patton happened to be a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He was a Scotsman and he got there and uh, did a marvelous work in ministry, but not before suffering. He got there and it wasn't long before his wife died of a sickness and his son did as well. He returned to Scotland where he was from, married again and went back to the New Hebrides Islands, spent 41 years there as a missionary and today on the New Hebrides Islands, 80% of the inhabitants and citizens know Christ and follow him. John Patton started that work there. When he left Scotland the first time, an older gentleman, an older Scotsman warned him and said, you need to be careful, you're going to get over there and you're going to be eaten by cannibals. He said, well, you're so old, it's not going to be long before you're eaten by worms. And whether I'm eaten by worms or cannibals, it doesn't matter because when Jesus comes back, he's raising me from the dead. Whether it's from the belly of a cannibal or whether it's from the belly of the worm, it makes absolutely no difference. Jesus will come in resurrection glory. He took the doctrines of the faith and applied it to his life. There was an intentional application. That's how a church can be a Velcro church. But there's a second thing, and that is Velcro churches prioritize ministry. That's what Paul did in verse number 17 of chapter 2. He said, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul wanted to come back in verse 18. Satan hindered him. And then in verse 19, For what is our hope? Our joy, our crown of rejoicing. Is it not even you? You are our hope. You are our joy. You are our crown. Not my preferences, not my traditions, not my opinions. You are our hope and joy and crown. And that is where his heart happens to be. Now, to address that, look what he did. He even put Timothy's safety at risk. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Thessalonica was a hotbed of persecution and Paul sent Timothy in the midst to strengthen them in their faith. So he set aside even Timothy's comfort. Timothy's safety to get back to that place to strengthen them. Ministry was more important than any other single factor in the life and service of Paul. And therefore, he threw caution to the wind to do the will of God. In other words, the Velcro church loves people and ministry more than preferences and traditions and Comfort. Not that these things are entirely irrelevant, but more than these things, the Velcro church loves people and ministry. Look, a church has got a choice. A church has got a choice. A very clear choice. A very abundant choice. A very stark choice. It can let, it can, it can magnify its preferences and traditions or it can let its traditions and preferences die and go to obscurity, or it can let people die and go to hell, it usually cannot do both. 
And so the church that is a Velcro church launches itself into people's lives, makes whatever changes are necessary in order to reach them. Hey, let me ask you something. Um, How many of you grew up with the older King James Version of the Bible? Okay. How many of you still use it today? How many of you brought it with you today? How many of you use a newer, updated version, a New American Standard, New International Version, English Standard Version, or New King James Version? Well, don't, don't answer, this is rhetorical, but why? Why do you use an updated version? Now, personally, I like the King James a, a lot, but why, why do you use an updated version? If you will answer that question you will have an answer to the question why we do not always sing old hymns as, as they are actually written in the hymn book. We get asked once in a while, why not sing hymns just exactly like they're written in the hymn book? The same reason you're using an updated version of the Bible. The language oftentimes can sound foreign, so you revise it and update it. The tune can be sometimes for people today unsingable and can make them feel like they're singing some foreign music and in fact some of them are many of the hymns are from a foreign source in many ways but that's why we do that because what we're attempting to do is we're attempting to do ministry beyond our comfort beyond our tradition beyond anything else because ladies and gentlemen people their salvation and their growth is far more important than any tradition any comfort any preference or opinion a church that will follow that can be a velcro church that's what we do mark chapter 12 verse 37 jesus uh, is preaching and it says there in the text and the common people heard him gladly The common people. What's the language of the common people? What's the tune and music of the common people? That's what you do to do ministry. The Velcro church then will prioritize ministry. But there's a third thing. The Velcro church also supports staff. Look what chapter 3 verse 2 says. Um, Paul has got a crisis situation back in Thessalonica. He's got a crisis situation there, and so he dispatches Timothy in verse 2. He sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul founded this church, and he trusted Timothy so much, he sent him back to, to, um, to uh, stabilize it. He was afraid that the persecution and the difficulty had become so nasty and difficult that they were about to be wiped out from their faith. And so into that crisis situation, he sends a young staff member into that situation to stabilize it. Paul trusted and supported the ministry of Timothy. Well, that's not all. Look at um, chapter 3 and uh, verse number 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. And so in verse 7, he's comforted. So Paul trusts Timothy. The Thessalonians trust Paul and trust Timothy as well. They're all mutually supportive of one another. In other words, there's no undercutting. There's no suspicion. 
There, there is no uh, power struggle. There's no power grab. Nothing like that at all. They have a mutual commitment to one another to do the will of God according to his word. And that church is busting at these seams and making a difference in the community. And it is a Velcro church. A key mark to any church that makes a difference for Christ, that reaches, keeps, and cleans folks as they come to Jesus Christ, is that they are wildly supportive of one another, including their staff. Now, I don't preach this in the interest of self-interest. It's just in the text. It will appear again in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It appeared in our 1 Timothy study as well and appears in about six other places in the Scripture. So it's just simply biblical. But the Velcro church supports staff. I hope you'll get the chance to read Dr. Stanley's book, Courageous Faith. I sure do love that man and appreciate him. And it's kind of difficult to see him get into his later years, to be honest with you. He was a tremendous blessing to me when I was in college. Not personally, but I would listen to him often. But he's written a book entitled Courageous Faith. And he has told his story of going as pastor to First Baptist Atlanta. Do you know that when they voted on him, only 65% voted in favor? And he went anyway, 65%, and he went. And uh, there was uh, a great move on the part of some, some power brokers in that particular church where such things were important to him, to, to move him out and to, uh, to ridicule him and to undermine him. One Sunday night, Dr. Stanley was preaching. One Sunday night, he was preaching in the downtown location. And as he was preaching, a deacon got so upset with him he walked up to the platform and he hauled off and slugged him in the middle of a sermon. And Dr. Stanley backed up and then stepped back forward and kept on preaching. And at that moment, Dr. Stanley became pastor of the church in their hearts. Is what happened. He, he um, poses the question, why is it sometimes that people oppose pastoral and staff leadership like we find here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 5. Why in the world would they do that? He lists several reasons. Number one, there are sometimes just legitimate differences. Now, I have to admit to you that when I was younger, I thought that all disagreements were just legitimate differences. I was that naive. I've discovered through the years that's almost not the case. It is the case, however, whenever you share and discuss about a legitimate difference and someone is willing to change their mind and within a couple days they do. In other words, you don't have a standoff between the two. That's true with husbands and wives. That's true with parents and children. That's true in churches. That's true just about anywhere where you have any kind of leadership when the difference is legitimate, people are very reasonable and they're willing to be reasoned with and they're willing to change their mind. They don't get stubborn and unreasonable about things. But that's one reason. The second happens to be, not only legitimate differences, but the second happens to be, Dr. Stanley says, jealousy over the calling and the anointing of God in a pastor or staff member's life. And he thinks that that was at the root of a lot that he was facing at First Atlanta in the early 70s. The third happens to be, some people are just wounded. Some people are wounded. In other words, what happened is that before the staff member ever showed up, a long-gone staff member, a long-gone leader, happened to wound somebody. And they haven't gotten over it. And so anything and anyone that appears like the current staff member 
the current leader, reminds them of that, ends up touching accidentally a sore spot, and there ends up being unreasonable opposition. Hey, that, that can happen with leaders. I've told churches before, and I've never told you, but I'm, I'm not, and the staff and I are not previous staff. Please don't punish us for what others have done in the past. And you're not doing that now. Don't, don't misunderstand me. And I'm not suggesting these things are problems. But I do know that the foundations are always crumbling in human hearts. And just as soon as we don't pay attention to it, it would become a problem. But some people are just wounded and they haven't got past it. It's like Mark Twain said, if a cat ever sits on a hot stove, he will never sit on a hot stove again, nor a cold one. You've got a staff member or a leader that wounded you, that broke your heart, that disappointed you? Well, that's a hot stove. The current staff and leadership are not the same. We try to be cold stoves. And so taking care of those hurts and taking care of those difficulties is extremely important in an atmosphere where we do have leadership. Dr. Stanley mentions another thing. He says sometimes people just don't know Christ or they're not following him is another reason. Now, I've added three more to this that I have found to be the case. There are some in churches that have been called to ministry when they were children or teenagers or young adults, and they didn't surrender. They pursued some other vocation, and as a substitute, they try to control the staff. That can be a challenge. I don't see that here, but that can be a challenge. And then another one is, I have found, and this can be especially true, well, for just about anybody, but if you've got someone that gets bossed, harshly at work or bossed harshly at home. Well, they come to a place where everybody loves everybody and they feel free then in one place in their life to boss others. Now look, do not panic over any of these realities. If you ever witness to them, you need to know something. Don't panic over them. Do not have a meltdown. Do not have... Um, don't fall to pieces over that because you know why? Churches are not museums of perfect works of Christian art. Churches are hospitals. And we are the place where people who have been wounded, who have been disappointed, who have been brokenhearted one way or the other, we are the place where they come and we want people like that here. That's precisely what we want. Well, the text teaches that Paul supported Timothy and the Thessalonians supported Paul. There's a fourth part to a Velcro church, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, the Velcro church emphasizes prayer. Alan Redpath, former pastor of Moody Memorial Church, said, Never undertake anything that you cannot adequately bathe in prayer. And that's what Paul does here in the text, beginning in verse number 9. Look with me in verse number 9. Look what he says here to the Thessalonians. He says uh, to them, For what thanks can we render to God for you? So in prayer, he emphasized thanksgiving. We've got to be very, very cognizant that even in our church miss, God gives us blessings that we can thank him for. There is good news in the local church. Then, look at the length of prayer. 
night and day, praying exceedingly. And so the little five and seven minute prayers, which are average for Southern Baptists, won't cut it in a church that wants to be a Velcro church. Night and day, praying exceedingly uh, for these requests. Verse 11, look at the faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you in Thessalonica where things are hot and full of persecution. That's the kind of faith he had that God would take care of him. And then the um, emphasis in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. In other words, the emphasis of New Testament prayer, as important as thanksgiving and praise are, the New Testament emphasis on prayer is to ask God for something and come before him with asking and to trust him. I think this is so important, and I've seen this demonstrated in my own life and our own family's life. I've gotten worried sometimes about the impact others might have on my children. In our neighborhood in Texas, I was very, very concerned about a family up the street and their influence upon uh, my daughter. There was a lot, of, a lot of drama there, and there were some moral things going on there that I did not want her to be exposed to. They didn't care. They just didn't care. So we tried to carefully navigate that. And one thing that I did, I said, God, please, there are gobs of little kids in this neighborhood. They do not need to be exposed to that moral influence and all that drama down there. Would you please change their hearts or change their address? In one month, there was a for sale sign in front of their house. And in one month, they had moved. I got concerned about a family across the street. The parents were not giving this little boy guidance. He didn't know whether he was a boy or a girl. And I said, God, that is a, that is, that is a situation I do not want influencing or confusing all of these kids from pre-K 4 up to the fourth grade. And by the way, after school most days, we had about 17 kids in our house or front yard. That's what kind of neighborhood it was. And so I said, God, would you please tra- change their heart or change their address? In one month, they moved 40 miles away. Another time, I was concerned about the hostile environment a coworker was creating for my son. And I began to pray, God, would you change his heart or change his department? Prayed for it. And you know what the Lord did? He did both. Changed that young man's heart. He got peace in his heart and life and changed his department as well. Now you might say, and a skeptic might say, well, hold on just a minute. Those are just coincidences. Here's what I've discovered about coincidences, friends. They increase when prayer does. Every time. You turn it over to God in prayer. Do you have a child that you're worried about the influences on your child's life? Is there a new convert, a new member that you're worried about the influences on their life? Here's what you do. You go before God and you tattle on them. Be a tattletale in prayer. Nowhere else, but be a tattletale in prayer. Emphasize that. Have a heart for it. S.D. Gordon said, you can do many things after you've prayed, but you can do nothing but pray until you've prayed. A Velcro church 
that is effective will emphasize prayer. Well, what do I do this morning? I want that kind of connection with God. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13 says, The one who covers his sin will not prosper, but blessed is the one who, cover, who uncovers his sin before God and confesses it. God blesses the one who confesses. Listen, you know what you do today? Go before God and tattle on yourself. Tattle on yourself. Come before him with humility and confession. And you know you can do that. And God promises he will receive you with humility and confession because Jesus bled and died in your place. And so now the gates into the throne room and the entryway has been blown wide open and made open permanently to anyone who will turn to Christ and trust his death and resurrection. You've got to come and you've got to tattle on yourself. I've had to do that at times. I have. Anytime I mess up in my home with my wife, she can tell I'm about to apologize because I bring her a Diet Coke with it. Last time, I had to bring a whole case sitting in the closet. If you will tattle on yourself and bring that to God, God promises grace and forgiveness and salvation. Others of you have done that. You've trusted the cross and resurrection. You've given your life to Christ. You need to become part of Beach Haven. It's time. Come on and follow him. The door's open to you. Some of you need to be baptized. You come as well. God may be doing something else in your life, but I want you to quickly stand with me, please. And let me pray for you. We're going to ask God to do a neat work in your life. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity to speak.